In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. reason I'm here is my home is badly affected. I moved to Donegal in 2013. Um, my daughter lives there. I wanted to. I was relocating. Um, I wanted to be near them and see my grandchildren growing up. Bought a beautiful home in Manor Cunningham. Um, everything went swimmingly for the first few years, and then we had the bad winters. Uh, in 2011, I had the house painted, and the paint wouldn't take on one of the gable end walls. Had it repainted still wouldn't take and then the cracks appeared I'm sort of flying the flag for the OAPs because this 9010 scheme we were never taken into account like you would have to if you were an OAP you would have to have a large private pension fund to navigate that scheme otherwise I'm actually facing homelessness that's how serious of a situation that's how serious mine is yeah because I don't have the money um, and uh, currently now we're talking about moving out of one side of the house uh, my own bedroom, the, uh, head, the head of the bed is to the gable end wall. And there are nights I, I lay there and I thought, uh, you know, is it going to give? Because it's actually coming into the room. Um, I remember one night coming home, uh, it was a Sunday night, I was after being out, and I came home and I could hear this banging and crashing. Didn't know what it was, but I found it later. I went into the attic, I checked every room, there was nothing amiss, and it was actually the blocks cracking. We come from Kodaf and Donegal, and there's... Probably, we think maybe up to 200 houses in Kildare with Micah. Our house was built in 2006. Uh, it's within a site of 18, and the cracks started to appear back about four or five years ago and painted over them a few times. Getting worse, and we've obviously had to apply it to the scheme. We haven't got our house tested yet, but a couple of other houses within the site have, and they've been tested positive with Micah, and they've been told the houses have to be demolished. So. We know we're in the same predicament and uh, we just have to come and support our neighbours and everyone will be here to try and uh, get this over the line and so it's affordable for everybody. Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, did you know you don't have to be brilliant to produce brilliant work? Yeah, I know it sounds crazy, but take a listen to this. What about the artist uh, Henry Matisse? Uh, basically, um, he was an interesting innovator because, again, he was he was always finding a new way to be creative, a new way to bring him to the next phase. Tell us a little bit about him. Well, he's kind of an example of what we're talking about. He, was, he had a job as a lawyer and he was sort of set up for life, really, um, uh, he just, but again, he decided that he, you know, he just wasn't cut out for it and wasn't enjoying himself. So he started to um, go to evening classes and and learn how to paint in the evenings, and he kind of slowly built up uh, and started exhibiting his work, you know, uh, one piece at a time. And um, so, you know, he he felt really trapped in his um, job as a lawyer, and um, by um, you know, just going to evening classes and learning to paint in the evenings. He he slowly built up his career and then kind of took the took the plunge and left his sort of safe job as a lawyer and um, but became, a, 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 you know, slowly built up his career as an artist. But he kind of tried things out, you know, he tried... Um, he always kind of experimented and tried, tried different styles right. and put them out just to see 
what kind of response you would get. Okay. You also talk about prototypes and prototyping in the book. And again, this is, a, I suppose, a, a transition from one place to another that one might come up with a cheap scaled-down version, uh, you know, just to test the market. But again, it's it's sort of uh, sort of crawling before you walk, isn't it? A prototyping approach. Yeah, that, that's kind of very much what what uh, Matisse did. He would he would um, you know try out. Uh, uh, you know, he he had like an exhibition before he gave up his job as a lawyer. He was like sort of testing the the waters, so to speak. Uh, you know, he had an exhibition just to see how it would go, and it went well. And then he kind of, that gave him the, the the courage to to move on and become um, you know to to keep having more um, uh, exhibitions. But a lot of um, I think a lot of uh, creative people they will try something out as an experiment, put it out there. Um, uh, Thomas Edison is in in the book as a great example of. Um, he had some great ideas and he spent hundreds of thousands of of dollars um, developing them and put them out there and some were a complete failure and some were a, were a success and that, you know the truth is you never really know um how how successful your idea is going to be until it's out there and people are reacting to it um so there's some quite you know interesting examples of some of his failures in the book at work. but that you know they were great ideas and and um but they just didn't work um, so it's kind of, um, you know, if you're a creative person, you you know, you you have to try things out and see what works. And you're always going to have a lot of things that fail and just don't work. And you just have to accept that that's part of, you know, on, on your path. Some fascinating insights there from writer and teacher Rod Judkins from Down to Business with Bobby Kerr. And of course, you can tune into Bobby every Saturday morning from 10 till 12. Jeremy, what is Clarkson's Farm about? Well, it's, it's, does it, well, it says on the tin, it's about me running a farm. My farm, in fact. Because um, I bought it in 2008 and somebody else ran it. And then he was retiring, so I thought, well, I'll do it myself, because how hard will that be? And it turns out very hard. Um, <laughs> it's a nice show, it's gentle, it's, it's interesting, it's funny. It's all the things you really want from a TV show. Had, had you a romantic idea about working the land or, or or what inspired it no i thought that you put seeds in the ground and then weather would happen and food would grow and then i'd buy a range rover and go on a skiing holiday because that's <laughs> what i thought farmers did but it turns out that's not what farmers do um it's hard graft and i'm i'm a fish out of water doing it um and it's i think that makes for an entertaining uh, bit of television yeah, for and for people, I, I've been lucky enough to see some of the episodes. For people who think you're you're just some hands off farm manager, I mean, you're actually you're out there building dry stone walls with your bare hands. Well, I've done well, yes, and then it got kicked over by. Well, it a, did, it did. Actually, build dry stone walls. No, I just got shouted at a lot. I mean, I I do want to know. I still do. I mean, the, the TV cameras are long gone, but I'm still doing it. Um. I, I sort of want to know how you farm, how you manage the countryside, how you grow food, um, and all of the things that farmers have been doing for 12,000 years. I want to know, you know, how do you do it? So, yeah, it, you, you need to be hands-on to do that. And it would help if I could attach anything to the back of the tractor, but I still haven't mastered that yet. Yeah, t- tell us a little bit about your attempt to go and buy a tractor for the farm. 
Well, that was the first thing I did. I hadn't got anybody helping me at that stage. And I thought, well, I'm bound to need a tractor. So I was looking through sort of Tractor Exchange and Mart, and there was a Lamborghini, and it was sort of less than all the others. So I thought, well, why would you not have a Lamborghini tractor? So I bought the Lamborghini, and then and then now I realise why it was less than all the others is because it's rubbish. Um, it's it's too big and it's too powerful and it and it uses too much fuel and it doesn't fit through any of the gate posts and it breaks all the equipment you put on the back and the steering wheel came off and the brakes failed and it's just a bit of a disaster really, but. Um, but it still says Lamborghini on the side. <laughs> I mean, it was, was was that part of the appeal of farming for you, the the, the machinery side? Because you've got sheep. It's mostly tillage, though. So that means, you know, and it's a, it's a big farm. It's a thousand acres. A thousand acre mm. tillage farm means big machinery. It, honestly, it doesn't. I mean, I wouldn't want to buy a combine harvester. You know, they're a quarter of a million pounds. So, so huge amounts of money. So, no, I just rent those in and rent a driver in to do the combining. But the tractor is about all I've got that that's, what would classify as farm machinery. No, it really isn't that. It's I wanted to see, I wanted to just be a farm, I wanted to do farming. And actually, I've done enough machines. I've done enough driving around and going in speedboats and planes and things. So, I know I wanted to do the complete opposite. And, and I'm doing and loving it. Yeah, really? Like, is this the career now? Well, it's not a career, no, because the Grand Tour is, is far from over. It's still fun, and I love doing it. And we've got two waiting in the wings to go out on Amazon very soon. Um, but, you know, they only take up a month of the year now. We don't do a weekly show anymore, which gives me um, sort of 10 months. Well, I thought I can either twiddle my, my thumbs or... I can get on and do this farm. So that's what I'm doing. It's, you know, some people in lockdown learn to play the piano. Some people learn to make bread. I'm learning to do farming. Jeremy Clarkson there. And of course, you can podcast Kieran's full interview on Newstalk.com. And I mean, apart from uh, um, what she ate and how she survived, what would the conditions have been like between now and last November? I would imagine they'd been pretty harsh. Yeah, well, this this area is uh, it's up in the mountains. It's probably about uh, close to six thousand feet elevation, um, and it uh, it would have some harsh winter conditions. Uh, this was a relatively mild winter for as Utah winters go, uh, but even with a mild winter, they probably had as much as two feet of snow at uh, d- different times. Uh, I know for a fact that in that area there would have been temperatures that would have. Uh, gotten as down as low as uh, 10 or 15 below zero Fahrenheit. So it was it was difficult conditions to say the least. Now, obviously, nobody's going to survive in those conditions without some amount of uh, nourishment, food and water. Uh, but what she had was very limited. She did have some rice and beans um, that she stretched out for a little while. But beyond that, she uh, foraged for grass and moss and subsisted on that now and there was an ample water supply there's a small river that run, went by uh near where she had camped but she uh she had grass and moss primarily and there was she said there was one couple that had come up there camping uh, they didn't see anything unusual but when they left they left her with their extra food um, so she had that at least one time maybe another but over five months uh, she had lost a lot of weight and was mm-hmm. in very poor condition physically, very weak, and had difficulty even standing. But the fact that she was resilient enough to to be able to even survive in those conditions 
speaks a lot about, uh, you know, her physical makeup and her determination to make something work. Yeah, and and the, the officer who found her was was she cooperative with, in the sense of was she happy to go with him to get checked out by a doctor? Uh, yes, um, and that was kind of an interesting side of it. this woman. We we know that she struggles with some mental health challenges, and that was a major concern. But we were concerned enough that we took her uh, against her will. Uh, she she didn't really oppose us, but we took her to be evaluated for her, her emotional condition and her physical condition. Um, she got kind of a shot in the arm, so to speak. Um, they fed her, they evaluated her, took care of uh, a couple of issues, and then ended up releasing her the next day. And the thing that seems unusual about, or one of the things I should say that seems unusual about a case like this is that um, she chose to be there where she was. She was up there because she wanted to be, uh, she wanted the isolation and the solitude and while she was resourceful in surviving for that long, she wasn't terribly well prepared for surviving that long. But she did cooperate with us and she was released. And um, we actually gave her a ride back to the same general area because that's where she wanted to go. We gave her uh, some food items. We bought her a new sleeping bag uh, to, to use so that she could at least survive a little bit more comfortably. Mm. Um, but the other thing that was kind of interesting in talking to her coworkers, you know, they said she's a very intelligent woman um, and her challenges have got her in a position where where she feels like she just wants to get off grid so to speak and and be on her own and and hopefully she'll uh, be able to do that with a little bit more comfort and without her health deteriorating the way it did in this situation. What an interesting story. Sergeant Spencer Cannon from the Utah County Sheriff's Office from Moncrief. I actually bought my house about five years ago when the prices were lower, but I do think that, um, yeah, they have a right to know if you can afford the property or not, like you should, kind of. I think anybody going for a property should have savings and should be able to prove that they can afford the property that they're going for, whether it's renting or buying. Well, I mean, if you're going for a car or a loan or a mortgage, they want to see your credit history, so I don't see the difference. I think they should be allowed to see your credit history I think it's hard I think it's very difficult for young people to have that kind of proof to be honest I mean nowadays who has that kind of um, money and it's before they can even view a property they're being asked to to give this do you think it's a step too far I do yeah I do I do think it's making it even more difficult for young people yeah it's it's making it impossible and there is no way out for them you know you can't give the money as parents and it's very, it's very hard. I wouldn't like to be in that position nowadays, buying a house. I mean, years ago you could go and view a house as many times as you needed to view it, but nowadays it's not possible. Just how, how do you do it nowadays? I, I couldn't even envisage trying to get do that now myself at the minute, you know. Yeah. You're glad you purchased when you did? Well, I did, yeah, 30-odd years, nearly 40 years ago, and it was so much easier back then. And some price difference too? Yeah, huge price. <laughs> when I look back and think of what I paid for it at the time and how it has appreciated, yeah, absolutely. So I'm Irish but living in America for the last four or five years. I bought an apartment over there for less than €100,000. So I have that half paid off in four years. But I'd like to come home. At the same time, it's hard to see coming back and paying three or four times that or more for an apartment in Dublin, you know? And comparing it to America, is it, is it easier or harder to get on the property ladder? Oh, easier in America, I'd say much fewer hurdles to jump through, you know. 
at the minute I'm looking to well rent buying hasn't been an option now for a long time but uh, I'm living back at home with my parents and um, I had been living in Wicklow Town yeah, no, if you're asking people just more to prove their savings, like the same way as you're trying to take out a loan or something, that's just going to put up more um, more barriers for them. You're living at home now, but what's the dream? Or what's oh, the, the dream's to own a home, yeah, one day. But, well, see, it's only, it's only now because I'm getting married soon. Before that, I never considered buying a home or anything like that. It just didn't seem, it's not a single person's thing. You know. I probably had a different experience. I didn't have a mortgage, um, but I'm also from the United States where they're very invasive. So personally, I didn't think, I thought it was a very seamless process. Whereas in the States, you'd have to have proof of funds before even touring a property. Um, I loved my estate agent and I loved my solicitor, so I'm sure that helped. Um, but yeah, I didn't think it was really invasive at all. But again, I didn't have to look for a mortgage or anything. So you've decided to buy in Ireland and yes. call it your home now, is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's been a long year, but I'm um, happy to be here and have everything be open and explore that. <laughs> and, and what, what is it that made you purchase in Ireland? Um, I've been looking for a property since I moved about two years ago. Um, I just thought it was a great investment, and knowing that Brexit was looming, I think this will be a bigger hub to Europe, and that you could probably rent it out, whether it's a second room or do a full Airbnb. It's kind of an investment. My daughter has it now. She, she's going to say agreed on a house, but um, we should have to jump through hoops to get that. So I think this is like a step beyond now from state agents. You know, they're in the business of selling. I don't think they, they have the right to be, you know, just that invasive. You think it makes it even more difficult for people? Oh, yeah, it's just because more obstacles in the way. You know, they have enough sort of farms to fill in and pay slips they're getting. You know, others, whether you're permanent or whether you're not permanent. Well, we got a gift from our parents, so it made it a little easier for us, for sure. But we were good savers. We were lucky to have two full-time jobs and we were able to save for a good while. And we bought a house, but I suppose we bought a house when... Um, the recession hit, so um, we didn't have to pay top dollar. Um, so I suppose it was a little bit easier to get on the property ladder. But we have an awful lot of friends at the moment that are trying to buy and build, and they're finding it absolutely impossible. I think it's completely intrusive, and I even saw that they have to explain a gift if they want a viewing of a property, which I think is completely unacceptable. I think a gift is a gift, and it's not, you know, to be shared. I think it's very personal as well. Um, so, yeah, completely unacceptable. So just what's the mortgage situation like in the north compared to down here? Well, the average house in the north is only like 100 and Sammy the Tots is about 160,000 sterling. Where I live, there's loads of houses, loads of developments. Like, you know where she get in the house, like, unless you have, I think the deposit is only 5%. Down here, I've been talking to people we're working with on site, and it's a disgrace. Like, they get, can't even get a house down here, you know. I couldn't live down here. It's too dear. Everything's too dear. But the wages are better down here for us. That's <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Now, going back to some of your comments on items uh, previously in the programme, if you lose your driving licence for dumping, you go a long way to stopping dumping. That's from Alan. So you nab them dumping and you say, ha, um, that's a driving offence as well as a dumping offence. You lose your licence. I'm not sure about the law you'd have to write to do that, but interesting idea. Uh, look at how surveillance technologies applied in China. Be careful about surrendering civil liberties. The concept of privacy has been hugely undermined in recent years. Some may live to regret it. That's from Cormac. Uh, of course the footage could be used if the drone observed a crime different to that of littering. Traffic cameras are used to detect all sorts of crime. Well, the point I was making is that if you circumscribe the use of drones for this particular use, 
would um, such evidence collected of another crime be admissible? And that's a question for the legal eagles. When an Irish woman was murdered in Melbourne, the perpetrator would not have been caught without footage from a camera in a shop window. Why not just use wildlife cameras for catching fly tipping? They activate by movement and can be hidden in trees. From the Pat Kenny Show. So we closed our doors uh, March 2020 here at the factory um, and yeah it's been a tough year and a half since we've been closed Nightclubs in Ireland have been closed for 15 months that's over 450 days since we had packed dance floors uh, Neil Kelly with the Causal Group um, in Waterford and moreover Factory Nightclub and the Woodman Lounge which is below us everyone keeps telling me nightclubs are finished they're only finished if you allow them to finish um, I put a positive spin on. We've already started booking our DJs again. So we've October the Bank Holiday Win with Republic, who are local promoters here. So we have some big DJs coming again. We started putting in, um, and we, we've just lined them up. Um, if we need to cancel them, we need to cancel them. But we reckon we'll be back at 40% capacity in September, 100% in October. That's where I'm judging it off of. It's, it's the mixed um, reactions coming from the government that really put us back a bit. Um, like we're trying to get stuff open, we're trying to do it right, and I suppose we don't know when it is. So again, look, even what I said to you there, that's me second-guessing from what's coming from Dublin, what people are saying and what they're trying to do. And what they're trying to do is say, look, if we push out for, say, August, we might get it in September. But coming from the Vintners, that's what they're trying to do, get the nightclub situation back up and running, you know. So like, we have over 200 staff in the Causer Group. And with clubs closed for so long, DJs, sound engineers and bar staff have been left out of work. And Cork DJ Stevie G says he hopes things will return back to normal soon, but he says there needs to be a roadmap for nightclubs. The pandemic, I would have been DJing obviously at the weekends, would have been doing festivals all over all the summer. Uh, there's no real roadmap back. Uh, even outdoor events, there's a couple of limited outdoor events, but for most people, uh, there hasn't been, uh, there doesn't seem to be much kind of uh, on the horizon. Uh, and it's another summer really uh, for DJs, artists, musicians, where they're kind of feeling um, that like they're not really been kind of. Uh, brought in the mix if you pardon the pun but um, I think there's hope I mean people always want to go out and dance and want to listen to some good music Uh, so there is obviously hope but uh, we'll see what happens going forward but there's lots of people willing to work and they're ready and uh, and it's not just DJs or artists it's people like sound engineers bar staff everyone is ready to rock and uh, hopefully things will come back sooner rather than later However, not everyone in the nightclub industry is as positive about the future. Paul Montgomery, I've been involved in the nightclub game since 1998. I think nightclubs, nightclub industry, we could say it again and maybe rephrase it, we said earlier, is gone. Because previous to COVID, and I had just had the experience of having been in it for over 20 years, that the numbers simply were not coming through the doors. And... I think drinking is front-loaded now rather than late-loaded. Um, I think that thing, technology has changed, that people are meeting people online and stuff. They're not, they're not depending on going to a nightclub to do that. Um, I think, you know, there's different. it's just a different scene. It's a cultural issue. And I think that the, the, the Generation Z now, maybe they were talking about, moved from the Generation X, are not doing what we traditionally did in the 80s and 90s and I think that their way of socialising is different but there's no doubt about it the proof of the pudding is there that before Covid 
people had stopped um, wanting to go to nightclubs as part of their stable night out. Barry White reporting for News Talk Breakfast. Now, this week, documentary on News Talk explored the unlikely friendship between two farmers and an ecologist in Dynasty, the farmers who went wild. I mean, I grew up with uh, myself and my siblings always waiting not to, to see the first swallow, but actually to hear the first cuckoo. And that only lasted a year or two, I'd say, that, that I can remember. I'd say it was five or six and, and that the cuckoo disappeared and the cuckoo hasn't been back yet. So that's that's over 40 years now that that mm. bird has been gone. The corn crack, which my father tells the story of, of um, cutting hay with, with, a, with a horse and, and a cutting machine and lifting corn crack chicks um, out of the, the swart and putting them in near, near the hedgerow. The corn crack was gone before I came here. So the unfortunate thing is all these species that are gone, we, we, we kind of assumed that they were never there. Um, and then you have uh, Skylark would have been here um, that's gone um, Meadow Pippets would have been here they're, they're gone no, they're, they're not gone countrywide but they're, they're gone from intensive farming areas Ecologists may have shouted the warnings but the changes were so gradual and insidious that few farmers paid attention to what was happening Donald certainly didn't but a while after taking over the farm Donald also inherited his father's beehives he would have been the beekeeper and I would have kind of, you know, given him a hand now and again, but I wasn't, uh, I wouldn't have been hands on. So the decision had to be made in whether I'd keep on with the bees or whether I'd just let, let him off. It was the very same focus. How, how could we get, you know, as much honey as possible? And we weren't never selling honey, but it was really rewarding to, to, to produce your own honey. And that reward is never financial but it was it's a reward that you you, you have to put a value on yourself mm. and it is so rewarding to be able to give a person a pot of honey that that came from your own farm so there was a great pride in it and then I started focusing as I said on, on trying to produce more honey and of course that was totally in uh, going against um, what we were doing already taking out all the, the weeds and the wildflowers so the more wildflowers you have uh, the more honey you have uh, and then when, when, you're, when you're talking about milk I suppose the more grass you have uh, the, the more milk you get and the more income you get uh, so you, you, know, you could take out the hedgerows and take out all the field margins and you have more milk but you have you've nothing left for the pollinators and it was actually the bees that was giving me more it was more rewarding to, to, to harvest the honey than it was the, the milk I don't know why I, that's just the way that's the value I get out, out, of, out of beekeeping and um, so it, it was all about uh, creating that balance whereby you have to put a value on something that there's no financial value on if you know what I mean The bees created a dilemma for Donal the way he was managing the land to produce more and more milk meant that there was no space left for nature so if he wanted more honey, he'd have to change the way he farmed. It was that simple. Turning back years of advice and best practice that thousands of farmers like him had adopted to increase yields and profitability. I realised very quickly that there needed to be a balance here. And uh, so straight away, almost, we started um, trying to do things that, that would benefit pollinators and bees uh, as, as much as, as produce food or, or, or milk. So we, we let the hedgerows grow and we stopped spraying the field margins and we increased the width of the field margins. And 
if there was you know wildflowers i.e. weeds growing we'd tolerate them to a degree mm. uh, and to a much larger degree actually and so we brought uh, a much more of a balance into the way we farmed it's, it's about the enjoyment the enjoyment you get out of farming like you, you have to have an income but if you don't enjoy the income it's about liking your job and, and for me I think unbeknownst to me at the time I think it was the sound of birds singing the, the, the visual uh, appearance of hedgerows seeing blossom on the trees things like that matter and there was never a value put on them so you, the farmer or, or anybody has to put a value on them and, and say, you know, what is it worth to you uh, to be able to go out early in the morning and hear birds singing and see all the visual aspects of nature that are on the farm? I mean, I'm, I'm absolutely blessed that, that I have a farm. My friends, the, 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 they don't have farms and they actually they, they have to go and, and take a journey to hear and see what I see every morning of the week. And that's an absolute blessing. It's, it's just totally changed the, the mindset. What a fascinating story from Documentary on News Talk. And of course, you can podcast the full documentary on Newstalk.com. Stay with us, Dee, because um, Lisa Geary is with us as well. Lisa's a, a resident of um, Rahan just outside Mallow too. Um, how will your own community be affected, uh, Lisa, there? Hi, hi, Andrea. Oh, well, it'll be just in one two kilometre stretch. I can tell you it's going to have a huge impact on us here so for starters, it will cross the Blackwater River with a massive widespan bridge and the Blackwater has been deemed a special area of conservation. It will continue on then up on massive stilts up through a beautiful greenfield valley where it will cut a farm in two and countless other uh, you know, land and homes have been taken by compulsory purchase order. It will close a riding school that primarily supports children and adults with sensory difficulties and many on the ASD spectrum and it will be 200 to 250 metres from our local national school here. So right beside the children's classrooms where they're being educated. That's just two kilometres. Okay. I could continue on and tell you way more. Damage. Yeah, yeah. and look, we've quite a number of messages coming in here as well um, to the News Talk text line. I might mm-hmm. come to them too in, in a moment, Lisa. Um, I was looking at some of the figures yeah. from the project team who were working on this consultation. And obviously, you know, due to COVID, yeah. the, the format in which, if you like, the consultation um, would typically take place was was revised to allow for, I think, what they called virtual a virtual consultation room. Um, unprecedented yeah. level of public interest in this over 40,000 even more actually they talked about the, the online and phone consultations the feedback they've received the emails all of that kind of stuff huge interest are you surprised by that? No I'm not surprised by that because we certainly live in a digital world so but what I will say on that is I completely refute what was said in that article in that Yari Howard the project leader here is saying that it was a very successful consultation process. I completely disagree. Fine. I feel that it was entirely flawed because it was exclusionary. And the reason I'm saying that is if you weren't if you're not relatively IT proficient and if you don't have good broadband connection, then you are at a significant disadvantage in accessing any information with regards to this project. So everything was online. For justifiable reasons, well, I have to say, it was yeah, public health okay. issues first. So, well, just, so that is true. Yeah. But no, 
Well, just yeah. to be just to be fair, just to be fair, because I I was looking at this. They actually said that in in addition to the thirty eight thousand people who viewed the the virtual, as you said, the the login or the you know the online consultation, yeah. um, the members of the project team also participated in seven hundred and twenty six online or telephone consultations. They got over a thousand feedback forms, eleven hundred emails. There was four hundred and sixty telephone calls as well. And in actual fact, they went on to say that it was so significant. Um, and a successful pon- uh, public consultation that they'd actually consider looking at this format again in future projects. They obviously mm, feel it. But I mean, what about all... I, well, I think that's completely that's completely skewing things. I'd love to see the demographic behind those figures. So what is the average age of the people that are online? I can guarantee it isn't any of our senior citizens. An awful lot of those people, our older people in particular, were completely left out of this process. The fact is, many of them don't even have a smartphone, let alone a broadband connection. So they could see no maps. And you need your map to understand what is going on with mm. this project. At a very basic level, you need okay. the map. None of us, because of public health guidelines, could go near elderly neighbours. We weren't allowed to with COVID restrictions. So none of us could go beside them and tell them. And I have to say, a good portion of them and ourselves and lots of other people who are directly impacted by this project didn't even know it had kicked off. Neighbour has to tell neighbours, had to tell neighbours. That's how we found out about this project. Okay, well, they say, so I'm, just, yeah, I'm just, about, just, yeah, just, the, the, they say as well that the consultation was advertised in the media late last year. There was also over 5,000 letters circulated. Oh, I'll tell you one, the letters, that's an interesting one, actually. Down here in Mallow, for example, the letters that were supposed to go to the people that are being directly impacted by this motorway went to the wrong people. So all of those letters, for example, in Mallow alone, and the hospital will tell you the disaster in Whitechurch as well, all of those letters went to people on the west side of Mallow when they should have, in fact, come to people on the east side. I was on a Zoom call with Yari Howard, and he took personal responsibility for that, and that error was never rectified. So yet again, another flaw in this okay. so-called. All right. Well, we might, yeah, we, we might get back onto them. So yeah, about here. that, uh, about the the consultation that took place. Stay with us, Lisa, because I just want to bring in um, yeah. just some of the text messages that are coming to us as well uh, regarding the MN20, the cost of the motorway, nine hundred million up to two to three billion, and it hasn't even started yet. So says the minister, Eamon Ryan. It'll end up um, probably costing the guts of four billion. Who knows? Says this listener. The numbers show there's no appetite for this road or motorway upgrade the N20 bypass Bullivant and Charleville and stop this political trophy project says another listener Sinead says the existing N20 can be upgraded for a lot less money less impact on the environment and the local communities a new motorway is a ridiculous waste of money um, a money for the boys project taxpayers money that should go to the likes of the hospitals and other disability services um, according to Sinead Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live in case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. Swearing relieves stress and can be beneficial to children, so parents should shrug off any concerns about their children's language. That is the view of our next guest, Michael Adams, who is the Provost Professor of English at Indiana University in the US. And I spoke to him a little bit earlier on and started by asking if swearing really has benefits for children, and if so, how? Well, it has benefits for everybody. I I wouldn't have gone as far as you did in the intro as to say that there's absolutely no reason for them not to swear ever, or that maybe adults should encourage swearing. It's not quite that. But children are speakers of the language on one hand, and they're also developing emotional responses to the world on the other hand. And swearing allows us to do a couple of important things. One of them is, because there's a little bit of risk in using it, if you use it with friends or people at work, or obviously children aren't doing that, 
uh, you, you, you uh, uh, in that risk, can establish some intimacy. You're, you're, you're with people who are willing to take that risk or break that taboo with you, and you trust each other differently as a result of that. And I think that explains a lot of why children and, and teens experiment with uh, strong language. The second thing is, though, that it does relieve stress. Uh, there's good scientific uh, reason to believe that now. So that can be a reasonably healthy thing for them to do as long as they learn uh, where and when to swear. Obviously, I, I get the bonding and the intimacy that might come from a sharing use of what children might perceive to be bold words or, or what have you. And I get the total yeah. stress relief thing. By the way, as someone who's very sweary themselves, you know, I, yeah. I'm not averse to any of this. But but I, I get that, you know, you stub your toe and you bleep, you know, you, a big expletive comes out your mouth. What about for things like expression and emphasis? Is there a merit to cursing and swearing in, in that sense? Well, I mean, there might be uh, in, in any particular conversation. If you need to make the point strongly, uh, it might be uh, all right to use uh, a swear word to do it. I mean, we've got the words in our vocabulary for a number of reasons, probably, and, and emphasis is probably one of those reasons, and stress relief is probably one of those reasons. And uh, there's a point at which when you're using all of the everyday words, you get to a point of frustration or you have to underscore a point or make yourself heard in a way that you're not being heard. And if you think it's the right social situation that you can get away with it, in other words, then an expletive, some sort of a swear word might serve your purposes then. Um, An interesting thing that we've discovered recently is is that contrary to what my grandmother always said, which was that people swear because they don't know any better or, or they're not intelligent, swearing is, is positively correlated with intelligence. So you're more likely to swear more the more intelligent you are, which sounds counterintuitive, but when you think about it, people who are really intelligent are always negotiating their way through difficult conversational situations. Preaching to the choir here, to be perfect, to yeah. be perfectly <laughs> honest. I'm the one who's, um, I'm talking about it, and I'm the non-sweary one here. I, I'm just clearly very intelligent. Um, no, what, what I suppose <laughs> I'm asking is, as a parent, though, should we be, you know, if we do want to teach our children to express themselves, there are settings where perhaps swearing is inappropriate. Is it too much of a low bar to allow them to swear for emphasis or swear to relieve stress? Should they not be more articulate than that? Well, I think sometimes swearing can be very articulate. It's not a question of anything goes. I don't believe, though, that there's a profanity with a capital P. I think there's only profanity with a lowercase p. That is, profanity in a context. And the context is going to guide whether it's a good time to swear or isn't a good time to swear. And that's really one of the difficult things about how uh, learning how to use language well anyway. It's something that adolescents have to experiment with. All kinds of things come into play as they figure out how to make the best social use of language. And so, uh, inevitably, they're going to make mistakes with it. Uh, Younger kids, maybe it's not the time for them to start swearing for emphasis. And certainly with my own children, my wife and I say, oh, don't say that at school, because we know the child will get into trouble if, uh, (laughs) if, if they use it at school. But, but, my rule for anybody's language is that people speak the way they do for a reason. And kids are people too. And, and they're playing with profanity or trying to understand it and use it well uh, because they feel some need to do that. And if you find the time to talk about it, uh, it's a great topic of conversation. What do you think that word means? And, and why were you using it then? And do you think that's a word you could use at school? Yes, I do. No, actually, it isn't. So don't use that word at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but they need to be taken seriously in their use of language. And so I think sometimes um, a little less reaction and a little bit more conversation uh, would be a better way of dealing with swearing. And just a swift, it's always wrong answer because 
really that's a parental lie. Not that we don't tell those sometimes, but it's not the case that swearing is wrong in all situations. It's that you need to learn which situations it works well in. What an interesting take. Michael Adams there from News Talk Breakfast. Can, can I ask you, actually, what do the Ireland players want from, like, do the Ireland players in this Irish group, for example, or any Ireland group, how do they want England to do? What, as a player? Like, do, do the Ireland squad in general, if the Irish squad are around, just happen to be watching an England match, do they want England to win or do they want them to lose? If I'm watching England, I don't, if it's a friendly game, I don't really care. Me, I'm speaking obviously for myself. It's not a friendly game. It's a World Cup qualifier. England are playing the world. England are playing the European final. Um, do the Irish players want them to win or do they want them to lose? Considering they all play in England, I'd, I'd, I would guess that they want them to lose. They won't yeah, probably yeah. say it publicly, but deep down, why would you want England to win? The, like, I don't know. I, I just, I'd be very surprised if, if, if maybe, maybe some of the kind of English Irish lads that have a little bit aren't a little bit more kind of. I don't know, you just don't want them to win a tournament. I don't know what it is, you just don't, don't you know? You don't want them to win a tournament, do you, Johnny, surely? I, being honest, when it, if it got to the occasion, I can talk all I want. I'm pretty certain, like instinctively, without me doing anything or being able to end about this, and all I can say on the radio, my body just does not want England to win these games. But I'm, I, it, it kind of, it doesn't really make sense at this stage. But that's just how it is. It's, e- it's isn't it easy to say, yeah, I want England to do well, and it's great to do well, and then all of a sudden you see them in the semi final, and you think, do you know what, and they're two games from, and all of a sudden it's that like, even if you're saying you, you, you try, yeah, mm. I want you, like I'd be speaking to me father and or something, I'd be like, yeah, I don't mind if you. Sp- this is an awful lot like Brexit in that people voted for it knowing that it wouldn't happen if you know what I mean so it's like like grand we can do this hypothetically but um, you know like well, let's vote for Brexit because it never happened and now the reality is that it is and if England do are on the cusp of winning you know a final and we were sort of saying all along yeah I love England to do well then you'd be like no actually no, I don't. The and, is, I don't the re- know, like probably like you, I don't even know the reason why I don't want them to win. Like, I, is, I it, is it all the nonsense? Is it all like, the nonsense story. around it, Stephen? Is it all the nonsense? It's not yeah, the players. It's, it's not the manager. Like, it's the nonsense around it. Talk about like know all the poppy stuff before this show. I have no problems with any of that stuff. The way as an I, I understand history is history, and I've moved on for that show. But it's just regarding the football. I don't know. It's just something inside me that doesn't like seeing them winning the rugby. I don't even care. It's just the football. I don't know whether because I'm kind of. So, like, because I love football, I, it's just the, like, see, if England won the World Cup in rugby, I swear to God, it wouldn't bother me because I don't really, like, I don't love rugby the way I love football, so I wouldn't be that that bothered about it. Like, whereas in football, I just can't want England to do well. I don't know. So, I think sometimes it's that. I think sometimes it is some, and like, I, you know, I'm very conscious saying this as like a member of the media, but sometimes it can be the media hype and the buzz that generated, and probably. Like we're all roughly around a similar age, and I think that like the England team, like the gold, the so-called golden generation team, and like the early 2000s, that team, 2004, 2006, and some of the buzz and hype that was generated around them, maybe even the way that they would speak about other nations that they were playing against, the, the assumption that England were going to go and do it, that maybe in a way. Like that, it, it, they built themselves up for that fall sometimes. Like even when they played Iceland in 2016, and some of the language about Iceland that beforehand the small bit disrespectful, and you can't help but enjoy that. And because we live and we consume all their media and we consume all their, you know, their punditry and their, you know, their TV and everything, we 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 see so much of it. And sometimes it's like. 
um, it's a very exceptionalist view of the world that it's, you know, we are England, that I think a lot of people just naturally rally back against that too. I think that's a big part of it. The thing, though, as well, from an England point of view, like they've not won anything. I know they've won the World Cup in '66, but they, 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 they've gone through years of not winning anything as well. Like they're probably due. Like considering they're a huge football nation and they've got really like kind of great history in the game, they're probably due to win a tournament. And like most people wouldn't be grudging them. But I just think our small little island probably just would, wouldn't we? <laughs> um, but, the thing is, though, if, I, if they're ever going to win one, I think now is the time. They've got a huge chance. We can't get away from that. They're like, going to go out in the last 16. That's what's going to happen, isn't it? And we'll we'll have nothing to talk about. Um, <laughs> five three one zero six lads. How could you want England to win anything? It's post colonial bias, and I'm okay with that. I'll watch their matches, but I won't be able to relax until they're knocked out. New Zealand never <laughs> want Australia to win. Canada never want the USA to win. It's normal, says Pat. Uh, you'd happily watch them go through it, winning, but the aftermath, the constant rehashing, replaying, chest beating, fist pumping, would make you hate yourself forever. Uh, JD, personally, I love watching the English. There's always a drama. However, the soap opera from the English media is by far my favourite viewing. Hype, 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 hype. Q, inevitable failure. Then, boom, media blackout. It never happened. Top viewing, says Bobby in Castle Connell. John Duggan on Football Saturday from Off the Ball. OK, I'm going to leave you with now Henry McKean and his camper van tour of Ireland. Have a great weekend. I'm on the road again I ain't got no woman just to call my special friend We're on the road again and we're making our way across the wild Atlantic Way from Ballybunion over towards Kenmare, Skibbereen and eventually we'll make our way all the way up to Britta's Bay. My name is Jerry. I'm just up here for a few days holiday in Kerry. I'm just here in Kerry for a couple of days, uh, relaxing. Are you enjoying this vacation? Oh, yes, beautiful, yeah. My shirt says the kingdom, isn't it? Beautiful place. And you brought a trumpet with you? I did. Do you know I was 60 years of age when I went into pro music in Cork? And there's a music shop, and I went in for a trumpet. And I said, could I have a trumpet, please? And when she got the trumpet, I said, look, I changed my mind, because I said, I think I'm too old to be playing a trumpet. And she said to me, there's a woman came in here two weeks ago for a trumpet and went out the door, 80 years of age. Well, I said, if she can play it, I'd be able to play it. We're here at Moles Gap at Ladies View in the heart of Kerry, Which on the beautiful. ring of Kerry. You're on a staycation. You're enjoying it? Yes, so it is beautiful, yeah, yeah. I play Amazing Grace because this is, this is God's land here, you know. And, and to look at that, you have to... You know, there's no handyman made this. You'd have to believe that there's a God there when you look at this view here. It's just beautiful, isn't it? Hi, Henry. I'm Jerry O'Sullivan. I present the Kerry Today programme on Radio Kerry, and I'm from Kenmare. Jerry, we're here in Kenmare. It's stunning, and we can see the Atlantic right beside where we're standing. It's beautiful. Tourism this year, staycationers the town looked quite busy to me yeah it's it's busy and it's just the last two weeks now it's really kicked off lots of people coming in there's businesses opening up obviously reopening the last couple of weeks but there's a lot of new businesses as well like there's the Lansdowne Hotel has been refurbished that's reopening Park Hotel is reopened there is a number of new cafes and restaurants that are starting off for the first time because of the pandemic a lot of places kind of went through a bit of a change so there's a lot of good bit of optimism around the town that new businesses are opening up and it's 
been a great response. Lots of Irish tourists coming down, lots of staycationers. Do you mind people driving camper vans? Do they delay you? People like me blocking up the roads? Only the way you drive, Henry. That's the only thing that annoys me. But other than that, they're they're great. Like There's a load of people who come camper vanning Kenmare. They all park down on the pier on the waterfront. 10, 15, 20 overnight during the summer. And I think with the staycationing, many more people are actually travelling that way. So you're getting the, the real experience. They're, they're bringing the accommodation with them. And you park up and you can have access to all your facilities. You can park right beside the seaside. It's a nice way to go. It's a nice way to travel. Good morning. Uh, Mick Lee is my name. I'm from Galway and uh, currently living in Tremor in County Waterford. My name is Marjorie Lee, wife of the dear beloved beloved Mick. So you have a camper van. We're here in Skibbereen in West Cork. Why do you love camper vanning? Well, I like the simplicity of it. You are not distracted by all the other sort of stuff that you can be distracted with at home. Uh, Also, it allows me to be a lot closer to nature. And I enjoy that. I find it relaxing. I always loved uh, tenting. And this is a step up from the tenting. It's a bit more comfortable you're in out of the elements, particularly here in Ireland. The beds probably are not as comfortable as the home bed, I would say that. (laughs) But you could get a new mattress for your uh, van if you intend doing a lot of it. I would say rent one before you buy one. It's not for everybody. People have rushed into it without really deciding whether or not it's for them because they can't travel overseas. I know a lot of people that wouldn't be as enthusiastic about it as we are. I forgot to put the screen up, so the light came in. And my son was like, Daddy, Daddy, it's it's sunshine, it's sunny. It's six o'clock, get up in the morning. <laughs> you can adjust. You just go to bed a little earlier and you get up a little earlier. I'm wondering, are you taking any little sedative before you go to bed? Is that a good idea? Oh, I'd recommend that. It's all part of camper vanning. I'm having a chat with Jim and Joyce Bates. You are novices when it comes to camper vanning. What do you love about it? Why did you decide to go on a road trip? love the fact that we can pick up and go wherever we like. We have all our stuff with us when we arrive somewhere. Like yesterday, we went to Loch Hine and I was thinking, oh, I'd love to go for a swim, and we had all the gear with us. It was fabulous. We were able to have a picnic without kind of having to pre-thought it. And you're sitting on deck chairs, you're having a, a breakfast sandwich. I think it's got Clonakilty black pudding in it. That's correct. <laughs> it's my husband's birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> Thank you. How are you finding the camper van experience? Very good, apart from getting bitten by bugs last night. That is a good point. My leg, I'm showing it to you, big red spots. Yeah. So that was Alexa, didn't understand me there. <laughs> so even though we're getting back to basics, you still have the modern technology. Oh yes, always. So we're from Wicklow. We borrowed my sister's camper van. She lives in Limerick. So we drove to Limerick, picked up the camper van and headed. I've always wanted to go to West Cork, so here we are. Any tips for me? Uh, keep away from the trees on the side of the road. I've yeah. hit those a few times. Yeah. <laughs> the sink got blocked because I pour coffee grounds. Don't pour coffee grounds down the sink. And my sister's tip was leave the thing open and while they go over bumps it would, it would unblock it and it did. There you go. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. At AJ Products, we offer workplace solutions for office, school, warehouse and environment. But at AJ, we do things differently. Our approach to quality and innovation means we design and make many of our own products, giving a more unique and personal service to our customers. Like our sound absorbency screens, office panelling and our style metal storage cabinets, all designed and built by AJ Products. Visit ajproducts.ie or call 01 28 11 700. AJ Products. Surprisingly more. Ask AJ.